I'm excited. Hey, um, we have been doing, a, well, I've been doing a bit of a book series over the last probably couple of months. Anyone remember? Well, now that you've got the things in your hand, you really shouldn't get this wrong. But does anyone remember the book? The book of Acts. Does anyone remember who wrote the book of Acts? Luke. Does anyone remember what Luke's profession was? What his job was? He was a doctor. He took good notes, did our Paul? Uh, uh, Paul, Luke. Uh, Luke took good notes. Do all doctors take good notes, Catherine? Maybe not in their handwriting, but yeah, anyway. <laughs> hey, I'm, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to kick things off. Thank you, Jesus, that your word um, is for today. Lord, it, it, there is so much in here that we can, we can gain interest from, gain a knowledge from. Lord, I pray that m- my job today would only be to point towards uh, your word, um, and that all of us would have a hunger to develop it, to, to consume it, and have a hunger to get from it what you're wanting them to get. Um, in Jesus' name, amen. Cool. Hey, um, I was a bit ambitious, uh, and I was like, let's do Acts 6, 7, and 8. <sighs> yes, I know, a little ambitious. I'm like that dad that's like, oh yeah, we can redo the lawn and paint the fence and do the roof in a weekend, all goods. 11 to years later, it still hasn't been done. Okay, so what we're going to do is we're going to give it a go. Look at the person next to you and say, we're going to give it a go. Okay, but I'm going to tell you now, we may not get all through 6, 7, and 8, okay? So we're just going to see. Maybe next time it might be 8 and 9 or something, but we're going to see how we go. So get, grab your Bibles if you've got your Bibles with you. I'm new, using NIV. It's just a lot of people have it. Um, otherwise, grab your apps, and um, we're going to kick things off. Quick recap. So we're going to do 6, 7, 8. Um, before that, we did uh, Acts chapter 5. Yes, you're correct. Um, and in Acts chapter 5, there was a couple of main things. One, there was this persecution, uh, which came after a couple um, that had some corruption going on in their lives, um, and they tried to deceive the early church about uh, finances that they got. You can read all of this in Acts chapter 5. Anyone remember the couple? Ananias and Sapphira. It's a really good reading. <laughs> uh, one of the things we learn about God in Acts chapter 5 is that he is a God of multiplication. Multipli- multiplication. There we go. I said it right the second time. But at times, God also needs to subdivide, sub- subdivision. So uh, in there, he does do some subdivision. Um, he subdivides, he subtracts out uh, Ananias and Sapphira. Uh, and we're going to go into chapter 6, and we're going to meet a couple of new characters, a couple of new people. One person we're going to be introduced to, and then we're also going to be introduced into his death. I'm sorry, this is the first martyrdom, the first um, early Christian uh, that was killed, other than Jesus, um, outside of the gospel for, uh, sorry, outside of the gospels for the gospel. So that is Stephen. We're going to meet Stephen very shortly. And does anyone know Acts chapter 7 well enough to know who else we meet? We just get a snippet of him, and he's going to be a very major player later on. Anyone know? Saul Paul. He makes an appearance. So keep your radar open for the name Saul. You might have heard of the Apostle Paul or the, um, yeah, the Apostle Paul. 
but um, this he has a name change. We're going to get there. So, um, right, let me get my Bible. One moment. You can open your app now too. We're going to um, hum along. We might even skip a few bits. Um, but the choosing of the seven, verse, uh, verse 1 in uh, chapter 6. In those days, the number of disciples were increasing. The Hellenistic Jews among, the, among them complained that the Hebraic Jews, because, uh, because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. Quick reminder, a lot of people in the very early days of the book of Acts lost their jobs when they became Christians. Because uh, if you were worked in the temple, if you had anything to do with the temple, and there were a lot of associated businesses and, and roles inside the temple, if you were now a Christian or a Christ follower, uh, you were not seen as a, as a good Jew at all. And in fact, they probably viewed you as a bit of a cult uh, and so a lot of people lost their living, and back then when the man lost his living, for the most part, that meant the whole family lost their living. So there were a whole group of people that were, didn't have jobs, uh, were probably being kicked out of workplaces, um, were having to move, and that's why we read in Acts 2.42, um, a couple of chapters ago, where we read that people were really giving um, massively. Remember, they sold their property, their possessions, they gave, there was a huge generosity, It wasn't just a good thing, it kind of had to happen, otherwise people weren't eating. So when you read Acts 2.42 and people are like, yeah, let's be an Acts 2.42 church, you could be like, well, if you want that bit, you're also going to have to be aware that everybody was losing jobs and getting persecuted. Um, And so the the Hellenistic Jews um, were the Gentile Jews, so not the ones that were born Jewish necessarily, and there was a bit of a division happening amongst them. And it cracks me up that even in the first early days of church, there were church division. And we're going to talk about that very quickly. Verse 2. So the twelve gathered all the disciples. Remember, we had 11, lost one. Then we got, gained another one, I think, in Acts chapter 1. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together. So that the um, apostles were the twelve. And then the disciples was everyone else. Guess what? Interesting fact. Disciples here in Acts 6 is the first time it's mentioned. Um, you don't read it up until anywhere else, but, it, but here on the book of Acts. Acts chapter 6 is the first time you read the word disciples. Disciples are the rest of the followers of Christ. They gathered them all together and they said, um, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, I choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom, and we will turn this responsibility over to them, and they'll give our attention to prayer and the ministry of word. I remember when I was about 22, uh, which was six months ago. Um, <clears throat> yeah, sorry, I always make that joke. It's a dad joke. It's not Father's Day. Sorry, I'll carry on. So um, when I was about 22, I remember being at uh, a church years ago, and they had a guest speaker. He was very well known at the time, and he came in and he was talking about leadership. And he used this scripture, and he said, see, once you get to a certain level of leadership, picking up, I remember him saying that me and your pastor, like we don't pick up the broom anymore because it's kind of like there's levels of leadership and that's beneath us. Um, and so like when you, and he looked at the scripture and he said, and so this scripture, you know, we're, we've had a level now that God wants us to do this. And so therefore we will never do that again. 
Uh, and I remember thinking, oh, okay, yeah, sure thing, Pastor. Uh, I entirely disagree now. I think that uh, all of us can serve, and serve look, serving looking, looks like lots of different things. But one of the things about serving is that all of us have different gifts and skills and abilities. You know, when you bring the carpet square trolley in here, and it weighs like 200 kgs, apparently I'm not the first guy they call to lift it in and out of the, uh, the place. I don't know why. Um, but I do, I come and help, I, I actually myself, I come in whenever I can to try and help and serve on a Sunday morning. I'm telling you this, not because there's a bell that I want to ring, I'm just saying because I want to model that we are all, no matter where you are, we are all servers, and there's no level of service necessarily, however we are part of the body of Christ, and these guys, what these guys are saying, I don't want you to misinterpret it, what they're saying is, hey, God has got us healing people, our shadows are healing people, casting out demons, expanding the work of God. This God has got us doing this. We don't have a problem with waiting tables, but we need to make sure that someone is doing it really well. Because when I went to Bible college, they talked a lot about what it would look like to be a pastor. But if you have anything to do with a group of people in an organization, it's not just pastoring, but there's management and processes and systems involved. Uh, Not my strength, hence why I have a great team that helps with that. So they get a group of people together, and uh, the, the Hellenistic Jews were uh, upset with the actual uh, g- genetic Jews, and there was some d- debating and some arguing. And um, I've got the second one down. We'll go to the first one in a second. But why has there always been conflicts in church? Why do you think? Feel free to just answer it yourself. Why do you think there is conflict in church? You could write a simple answer and say, because people are in it. Um. I've written here for myself, it's because we're motivated by the opinion of man, not by the obedience to God. We let our preferences get ahead, um, and we don't necessarily let God's precedences work out. So I will say that again. We're motivated by the opinion of man, not by the obedience to God. There are so many things. There are our, our, our um, what's the word? our preference when it comes to church or anything like that. But I think a mature Christian is when you go, hey, is that really important? Is that really something that I need to make a big deal of? Could I just have a quiet word? Could I have a chat with someone about it and figure it out on my own? I think if I were to critique the early church here just in chapter 6 verse 1, you know, they were complaining and there was division amongst them. What they could have done is gone and talked to someone, which they did eventually. But I've written this down somewhere. Um, Talking about problems stirs things up. Solving problems calms things down. So when you just talk about the problem and you're not trying to help or be a part of the solution, you make the problem bigger. So, And I don't doubt that there are issues and problems. This is not just for church. This is in family. This is in workplace. If you're just talking about all of the problems, you're actually stirring it up. Um, I remember some time ago, um, I was talking to a, a, a guy, and he was saying, oh, there's division in the church. I was like, oh, really? He said, yeah, there's division in the church. And I said, oh, how do you know? And he said, well, I talked to this person, and I asked them, do you think there's division in the church? And I was like, oh, okay. And then, I, and then I went and talked to this person and this person. Then I went and saw that couple. And then I went and spoke to these people who left the church. And then I went and spoke to these ones. Then I took these ones out for dinner. I all asked them if there was division in the church. And I was like, well, how do you think it's spreading? And he goes, I don't know. <laughs> and I said to him, if you're talking about division and you're not a part of the solution, you're the one dividing. 
So we can talk about problems, absolutely, but come with solutions and a wanting for relationship and connection, not just the problem itself. And how many people, has anyone, maybe don't raise your hands, <clears throat> give me this if you know someone in your life who just loves drama. Do you guys know anyone? It's a couple of little, yeah. yeah. You just know those people who are just like, oh my gosh, did you hear this happened? Oh, Horatio. Um, and so we want to avoid that. Um, so what I would say is, I'll repeat that again, talking about the problems and not trying to be part of the solution is stirring it up, but fixing problems and having a heart to see reconnection calms things down. You know, we see here that Satan uses three main tools against the early church. They are persecution. We see in the book, of, uh, in chapter five, we see corruption with Ananias and Sapphira, right? Corruption. And we also see division. So three main things we see in the early part of Acts where the enemy is trying to disrupt the church. Because he knows that if he can disrupt it now when it's early and it's small, it's like catching cancer or something like that. It'll continue to spread. But if you catch it right at the start, I'm sure the devil was like, if I can just derail it now, it's not going to be a problem. And he uses those three tools. Persecution, corruption, and division. Right, shall we keep on reading? Yeah, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word that God is in order to uh, wait on tables. It's not a hierarchy, but it's about a body of Christ. Let's carry on moving. This proposal pleased, in verse 5, the whole group. I love that. They made a decision and the whole group were pleased. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit. We're going to read about him. Also, Philip, <clears throat> Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parametheus, and Nicholas and, uh, from Antioch, and a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. Anyone want to take a stab in the dark with my terrible pronunciation of those names? What, who did they represent? They weren't Jewish. So the initial problem was that the non-Jewish wives and the non-Jewish widows were uh, not being well looked after. Whether that was real or perceived, what they did is they put um, those people in charge and said, okay, you guys think the Gentiles are being left out? Let's get the Gentiles to look after this and make sure that everybody's getting the right allocations. That's good leadership because what, what they've done there is they've acknowledged there's actually a mistake, there actually might be a problem. And as leaders and as good Christians, can we be big enough to say, hey, I made a mistake. Let's try and work this out. Let's try and work with it. I always say when, because people struggle with conflict resolution, right? I said this to a couple of people. I said, if you're upset with a decision I've made and you just leave angry, there's two things. I'm either right or I'm wrong or there's something, maybe three. Maybe there's a gray. But I tell you what, if I'm right, I still need to talk to you and, and work on that, our relationship and pay, perhaps pray for you or apologize. But the second thing is if you just leave and you're upset, and maybe you're right, you haven't given me the opportunity to grow. Right? If you just leave, you haven't given me the opportunity to maybe I'm wrong and go, yeah, far out. I'm so sorry. Let's work on this. And it's the same for you guys as well. Right? So we'll leave well when there's conflict and have that conversation, but it's important. So I love that leadership te- t- 
tip there. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples, is verse 7, in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Why is that a big deal? They lost their jobs. They lost their positions. They lost their uh, means of money. They lost friends. They lost influence. Um, They lost community. So it's massively important in verse 7 that we understand this is a big cost for people. Um, And it's really cool. Um, Between verses 7 and 8, we get a shift. It's a subtle shift, and you can see by that picture there. In verse 7, it shifts. It's kind of verse 7 is a roundup, like, hey, this is what happened. This is the last things. We're kind of finishing up the first six chapters. And verse 8 is the first time we get introduced into this idea of the gospel going out of Jerusalem and into other places. And if you know anything about this story, you know it goes into a place that it shouldn't. Anyone seen those like um, those memes about um, uh, Lion King? And he was, and you know, the, he's like, "What is that shadowy place over there?" And then it's something like, "That's Hamilton Center. We should never go there." Um, this is like uh, uh, Samaria is considered, you know, we should never go there. You have nothing to do with the Samaritans, and. Um, You know, the whole point of the Good Samaritan story was that these were bad people, evil people that did something good that Jesus was explaining. So we're going to go into into Samaria very shortly. So we change things up in verse 8. Stephen, the man we just heard about, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and miracles and signs, sorry, among the people. But when you're often you're doing big things and out uh, standing above the others, uh, opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen. These used to be slaves, um, as it was called. The Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the province of Cilicia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen, but they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him to speak. Does anyone know the difference between knowledge and wisdom? I've written here, how many people know, like, sometimes when you, you think you've made something up, has anyone ever done this? They think they've made up a word or made up a really good phrase, and then some random place you hear someone else use it, and then you realize you weren't the person that invented that? Is that just me? Yeah, okay, just me. Um, I wrote this uh, a long time ago in my Bible. Uh, wisdom is simply the loving application of knowledge. So knowledge is just stuff you know, but wisdom is the understanding of when and how. It's like a tomato. Knowledge is knowing that a tomato is fruit. Wisdom is knowing not to put it in a fruit salad. There's a difference. So he grew in wisdom. So um, at the top there, verse 10, but they could not stand up against the wisdom of the Spirit. Sorry, the Spirit is on two different lines. The Spirit gave him as he spoke. We are not going to get through the whole thing, but that's okay. Verse 11. Then they secretly persuaded some of the men to say, We have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. Verse 12. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin, who testified, This fellow never stops speaking against the whole, this holy place. That's one accusation. Against the law, two accusations. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth, 
Nazareth, will destroy this place, three accusations, and change, um, and he wants to change the customs that Moses hand down to us. The Sanhedrin are charging Stephen with four laws that he's broken, all of which are punishable by death. Hint. <laughs> they were all sitting in the Sanhedrin, looked intently at um, Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Uh, scholars believe that's the same of when Moses went up and, and he, his face was glowing. I think he was so on fire and so connected with the Holy Spirit. His literal face was just glowing. How cool was that? Who wants a glowing face? Be good at nighttime. Um, <laughs> um, but, you know, it just again reminds me that even in the miraculous, even in the scene of the amazing, People will not believe if their hearts are hardened. So I've heard people say, wow, if you're a Christian, wouldn't it just make sense if God just healed everybody and healed, God just did this and this and this and did all of these miracles, then everybody would become Christians. And I go, ha, pick up the book of Acts. Because <laughs> people don't. People see paralyzed people walking around and go, no, didn't happen. No, it can't, that can't possibly be it. So it's not just about belief. There's got to be there's something else as well. And I think often our motivation is clicked into that as well. So chapter 7, but we are going to hopscotch, if you will, through chapter 7 for the sake of time. Is that okay? Anyone here good at hopscotching? No, neither. Okay. Uh, so verse uh, 11 and 12, um, we see the enemy, what he's trying to do to the work of God. Uh, number one, lies. Number two, they stir up. We talked about that already. And number three, brings division. So number one, lies. Number two, stirs up. And number three, it brings division. You know, in Ephesians six twelve, there's a very famous scripture that says, the battle is not about flesh and blood. The battle, the real battle that's happening is not about right now in this space, the politics, all that sort of stuff. Right now, the battle is actually by principalities, by, by the, uh, the spiritual world. There is a battle in the spiritual world. And I've written here, whenever you turn on the lights, bugs come. How many people know that if you're someone that, that edifies Christ, you look like Christ, sometimes you get some pushback, you turn on the light spiritually, and in the, in the, in the spiritual realm, sometimes things will push back against you. Anyone seen that? Anyone happen that? Have, have had that happen to them? And that's what happens here. Amazing spiritual ground has been taken, and so stuff starts to push back. We start to see persecution. So, if you read with me in chapter 7, then the high priest asked uh, Stephen, are these charges true? Then Stephen goes on to a very famous and well-known speech that lasts for 51, 53, 53 verses. Does anyone have a friend where you ask them one question and then they carry on for 53 verses for the answer? Anyone have a friend like that? Anyone is that friend? Yep. Yeah, that's right. And he goes for it. And I've written here, um, 
They open the door a crack for Stephen, and what did he do? Stephen kicks the door in. Sorry, it's minus a, uh, uh, another line there for kicked. But they just go, hey, uh, Stephen, can we ask you one question? And then he launches into this massive sermon that goes on for ages. We can't, for the sake of time, get into the fullness of it right now. But if you are wanting a quick explanation, a quick understanding of the gospel, um, you can find that uh, in 53 verses in chapter 7. If you're like, I'm still on this God journey, if you read the whole thing of chapter 7, Stephen goes back and he unpacks all of the Jewish customs, he goes through all of the Jewish fathers, and he's tying together, what he's doing is he's tying together the case of Christ. And he says, right down the bottom, if we go down, okay, so you'll, if you read it, we're not going to do it all now, he, he starts off, he says, um, brothers and fathers, listen to me, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham, starts at the father Abraham, and he goes on, and on, which is great, some really good stuff. He talks about Abraham, talks about Isaac, down to verse 9. He's talking about the patriarchs. Um, then he talks about in verse 11 when they got um, exiled into Egypt as slaves in Canaan, and then they came back. And he's unpacking this big picture. If you don't know the full history of the Jewish people, read chapter 7. It's got it all there. It's really cool. But if we read down to verse 51, I think it is, Scroll down on your phones. All right, now let's go to verse 48, actually. And I, I apologize that we're having to do this. We're kind of having to abridge it, but we just don't quite have the time. 48, he says, however, he's just gone all the way up to Jesus, all of the matriarchs, all of the really important people in Jewish custom and culture. And he says, however, verse 48, the most high does not live in houses made by human hands, as the prophet says. He's essentially saying, Jesus came. He no longer lives there. He was a person. Verse 49, heaven is my throne, he's quoting the Old Testament, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Um, or where will my resting place be? It will be in Jesus. Uh, has not my hand made all of these things? <clears throat> I always wondered, do you think Stephen knew what was going to happen? What do you guys think? Do you think Stephen knew what was going to happen? I, I think so. I think he knew. And if he didn't know, he should have with his verse 51, because he brings it home. You stiff-necked people, your hearts and your ears are all uncircumcised, unclean. You're not, you're not doing what you have been asked to by God, that means. You are like your ancestors. He just unpacked everything that happened to all of these ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him, which is Jesus. You, have, you who received the law... That's you, um, you Sanhedrin, you Pharisees, you Sadducees. You have received the law that was given through angels, but you have not obeyed it. He is calling them out publicly. And they, what is the next one? When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious. They gnashed their teeth. This is what gnashing your teeth means. 
Anyone ever done this to children? (laughs) They gnashed their teeth at him. Verse 53. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven opening. And the Son of Man standing, not sitting, which is interesting because that's Old Testament language, the sitting next to the right hand of God. Here he says Jesus is standing. Someone is walking into your presence. Someone's walking into your house. Is it polite to sit or to stand to greet them? Jesus stands to greet Stephen. How beautiful is that? Stephen says, I see the Son of God standing at the right hand of man uh, of God. Verse 57, at this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Do we have any tiny, tiny little ears that will understand what I'm going to say? I think we're okay. Stoning was pretty bad. I mean, it sounds bad, but it was pretty bad. First, what they like to do is they threw you off a somewhere between a 10 and a 14 foot cliff which is not enough to kill you, but to severely damage you. And then often they would throw stones from that cliff uh, onto you, uh, and you were alive. Often you would break your hands first, because the first thing you would do is they'd put, yeah, you'd put your hands up. It was an agonizing way to go. I mean, is there any non-agonizing way to be martyred? I don't know, maybe having your head removed, perhaps. But it was a horrible way to go. He was still alive, Head trauma, busted face. Once your hands are damaged like that to a point, even if you've got them in front of your face, they're mush at that point. So you're starting taking injuries on the face and the brain. It's horrendous. And I'll picture this. I want you to imagine it for this purpose, not just for goriness. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed out loud, I imagine, because they heard it. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Verse 60, then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold the sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. He died. Sound familiar? Jesus on the cross, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they're doing. But he was God. He was the Son of God. This is a man. I'm sorry, but if you start stoning me to death and my face is getting smashed to bits, I don't know if my first thought would have been for people, it would have been for protection. (laughs) But what a heart, what an on-fire man of God, the first martyr. I just love that picture. If we could just have half of that heart for other people, what are we willing to give up? What are we willing to sacrifice for other people? It's beautiful. It's horrendous, but beautiful. So what is Stephen doing here down the bottom of the page? He's giving Old Testament background to Christ. Oh, did we miss Paul? Where's the introduction of Paul? Have I missed it? All right, because I didn't read all the way. Fifty-eight, thank you. I was looking for it. They dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses 
laid their coats at the feet of a young man Saul. Um, they believe, historians believe that the laying of the coats was for one practical reason. Anyone want to know why? Better throwing and you don't get the blood on you because you need to be quite close. And the second thing is laying of your coats was like a witness thing because that person who got to hold the coats, they knew whose coats they were and they in a court of law could say this is who the people were present because stoning was legal, but you needed to have witnesses. If it happened, often you'd go in front of the court afterwards and explain. So Paul was there as a witness taking the coat so he could say, I've got Lyndon's coat, I've got Donna's coat, I've got Nikki's coat. They were all there present for the stoning. I know that because I held their coats. And then they can carry on. So we meet down the bottom there. These two people mentioned are Stephen and Saul. At first glance, at least initially, they are on opposite sides of the cross, right? (laughs) But have I got a story for you? We're going to read very shortly, not today, but in another, another day, we're going to read about the amazing conversion of Saul to the Apostle Paul. Man, I love that story. I've heard people say to me, yeah, but Pastor Dre, if you knew actually what I'd got up to in the 70s, it was a wild time, you wouldn't want me in your church. Or if you knew what I was doing in my youth group days, or if you knew what I was doing when I was a young adult and when I went off to, to, to college. I'm like, cool, did you murder anyone? Usually it's a no. <laughs> Usually. And I say, well, look, look, please read Saul. Please read Paul. It's very interesting. Hey, what I think we're going to do is we're going to leave it there. You're supposed to go, oh. Um, because it's been a long day. And uh, we're going to get to chapter 9 shortly. But that last bit there, before um, we get into chapter 8, in the read, it says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and he cried out, Lord, do not hold the sin against them. What was Stephen's focus directed to in his last statement? If you haven't already read anything, his purpose was people and not protection. The people, the people, the people. At a cost so great that none of us will likely ever have to encounter that. If you get to take one thing away today, I would ask you, what cost do you have? What cost are you paying for the cross? Because I believe the cost, the cross requires a cost. And if it doesn't, then I'd ask, what sort of impact are we making? If it doesn't impact your life at all. Jesus said, by doing this, you will turn mothers against sons and fathers and brothers and sisters. Not that we want that, of course. But it's, it's a tough place to be in. But I think, I think that we need to ask ourselves that, that question. Hey, if we flick over the page, we'll get to chapter 8 in the future. But for now, why don't you have a think about, you're going to take 60 seconds as the worship team comes up. And I want you to have a think about what stands out for you. Scribble out number eight. (laughs) What stands out for you in chapter six and in chapter seven? You've got 60 seconds. Just take a moment, think about that, ponder on that, and then I'll leave you with a thought. stands out for you. 
What's something that you go far out? That was pretty crazy. Or perhaps I could. All right. I'd like to give you one takeaway point that was just something that was raised for me. I'm going to say this statement, write it down, and then I can unpack the, what I mean by it. If we don't know the why, we waver in the when. If we don't know the why, we waver in the when. When persecution comes, when the time comes to share the gospel, when the time counts to cost, pay the cost, whatever it is, the when, but we must understand the why. Stephen was a man that understood the why. You don't die by getting rot in the face unless you know that you know that you know that you know that God is real, that God loves you, that Jesus is real. He had seen the fruit of it. So for those who are on the journey, maybe haven't made a decision yet, part of that for you is just knowing that God loves you, God is there for you, God wants you to take that step of faith. But we must know the why. It's not just that I've always come to church because my parents always made me come to church. We must understand the why. Because if we don't, we waver when the when the storm comes. We see that that point is much broader, much clearer in chapter 8 where we meet the guy, the likes of the sorcerer, Simon. Um, and we hear a guy who, who, who we're going to read about him at some point, but we, we hear about a guy who at first looks like he was doing the things that Christians do, but his motivation was wrong. And when the, when the, the, the wait time, when the cost came, he wavered. So my point to you today is, do you know the why? Do you know the why? Because if you really understand and you're convicted, you will stand strong when the wind comes, when the time comes. And we've seen, if you've been around, you've been in church for a little while, you'll know it when people like, time gets hard and you see some people hitting the door. Because I don't know if they've got it in their hearts. We need to have it in our hearts. Can you stand, please? You know when you watch a, um, I don't know, like a Marvel film. What are those things called after the credits? Something else pops up. An Easter egg. This is like an Easter egg for chapter eight. Are you ready? An end scene. Yes. I think they are they called Easter eggs. Is that what that's called? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. The young people are like yes, Pastor Troy. It's called an Easter egg. The last page of your study notes. It says something alone is something enough. We something are uh, something, something, something. This is the Easter egg. We get this from um, Simon. Belief alone is not enough. We also need a heart change. So just just understanding is great, and that's a big step. But we need a heart change. Do you know why I say this? Even 
the demons believe. In my home group recently, we just read about when Jesus comes to uh, that place and there's the demon-possessed man in the graveyard. If you read the first couple interactions, you would think he was a Christian. Immediately, he recognizes God and says, you are the Holy One. And he comes up to him and he knew who he was. But that was the enemy. Even the enemy believes. Even Satan can agree that God is real, that Jesus is real. There's that next step. What does that next step look for us outside of just belief? It's a living our life and taking a step of taking a step of faith. Uh, trick question, but let's just do it anyway. Does anyone fully know and understand the complexities of the gospel and the nature of Christ? Good, no one put their hand up. Woof. Neither do I, and you likely never will. So don't just go and understand. I will, under, you know, I'll follow God when I fully believe and fully understand. Unfortunately, that won't happen. There is a statement. There is a there is a statement of faith required too. Can you just close your eyes? I want to pray for you really loudly. Because the rain. Lord, I just want to thank you for everyone here. I'm not going to ask people to do anything. But God, I just pray that we count the cost. We do an inventory. We check that our hearts are aligned with you. And that's simply done by just going to you, Jesus. Lord, we want to be going to you. We love you. We give you position. We make room in our lives for you, God. Do a work in our hearts, we ask. In your mighty, beautiful, wonderful name. Amen. Hey, if you want to know more about God, if you want to get prayed for, if you want something, a prophetic word, if you just want to make a decision for Jesus, this space is available either right after the service or during this worship song. I make this joke. People call this an altar. What's an altar for? To be altered by God, not by us. Bless you. Thank you, worship team.